Father in heaven, we come before you this morning, Lord, to declare you are indeed worthy. You're worthy of all honor, praise, and glory, God. For you are over all. And so this morning, God, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. And like in the New Testament church, we ask that you would fill this temple with your presence. Come like a mighty rushing wind and blow over us and fill us afresh. Teach of all truth, we desire to have you instruct us that we would gain knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And so we offer this time up to you. We praise you and we give you glory, God. And Father, we ask that you would open your word, that your word, that implanted seed, would find fertile ground in the hearts of the children that are here and that you would implant it and that it would bring forth a harvest even a hundredfold for your kingdom and for your glory because you are worthy. And so bless this time. We thank you and we bless you, God. We give you glory. In Jesus' name and all in agreement said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Stephen. I'm on staff at Calvary Chapel, Lexington, and I'm the pastor of a ministry called U-Turn for Christ, which is a residential ministry that's on campus at Calvary Chapel, Lexington, that helps men who struggle with addiction. We house them. We give them Jesus, and Jesus sets them free from their addiction, and then we raise men up, and we send them out into the world to no longer be, hi, I'm Steve, and I'm a a uh, former addict, or I used to be an addict. No, I'm a child of God, and I've been delivered, amen? amen. So that's what we do. Um, so we're going to be in the book of Matthew, chapter 17. In a very, very special section of Scripture where we get a chance to study the event that happened on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus took his three best friends up there and they experienced something that I wish I could have seen. The title of the message is Mountain High, Valley Low. And I will explain that later on, but Mountain High, Valley Low. Just on the face of it, it's like, what? Mountain High, Valley Low, what's that talking about? Hopefully, as the Lord weaves us through his holy scriptures, we'll have a chance to really take a look at that and see what that really means. We're in 17 of Matthew, but before we get started, I wanted us to look back toward the end of Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, verse 21, it reads, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now imagine that. You, you Peter, and you take the God of glory to the side. Man, what you talking about? You can't, what? So Peter rebukes the Lord. But lest we forget, some of us in here have done that too, though, right? Come on, somebody. Yeah, somebody said, God, what are you doing? <laughs> Why is this happening to me? Peter rebuked the Lord. And 
saying, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Verse 23, but he turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Ouch. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus had a plan from the beginning, and the plan was to follow the Father's plan. And the Father's plan was what? For Jesus to come and die, that you and I might have life. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death on the cross. Drop down to 28, verse 28 in Matthew 16. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus speaks of an event that's taking place in Matthew 17. And he's telling them that so that they could be prepared to help them with the sorrow and the confusion of him speaking of his death. He tells them that there are some who are there in the hearing of his voice that will get to witness the Son of Man come in all of his glory. And that's what chapter 17 is about. And it picks up six days later. So let's take a look in verse 1 of chapter 17. It reads, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Up on a mountain by themselves. And in the Gospel of Luke, it says they went up there to pray. And quite often, when Jesus was walking this earth in his earthly ministry, he would get away, sometimes by himself. Quite frequently, he would get away with his disciples. And so he's getting away, taking his three best friends with him to pray. And that's a good word for you and I. It's always good to get away, right? doesn't have to be a mountain. It could be a prayer closet. But we need to spend time and get away so that we can get face-to-face, if you will, with the Lord Jesus Christ. So they get away, they go to the mountaintop, and they're going there to pray in verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. He was transfigured, metamorphosed, that's that word, that's what it means. In Greek, metamorphosis is a changing that is from something that was to something that's different, and it speaks of when a caterpillar crawls into a cocoon and it covers itself, wraps itself up in the cocoon, and it stays there. When the cocoon is open, the caterpillar doesn't come out, does it? What comes out? Butterfly. And so Jesus, by supernatural power, changes his appearance. He's something different. But you know what? God does that for us, too, because in Romans chapter 12, and I didn't give this to Pastor Day, but as I was thinking about uh, the study this morning and praying over it, God gives us that opportunity too. In Romans 12, it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves a living and holy sacrifice which is acceptable to you. And do not be conformed to this world, but be, that's that word, metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. And the Bible also says that we behold his face we are changed, what? In his image from what? Glory to glory. And so the word of God is about transforming us, if you will, metamorphosing us to make us look like who? Like Jesus. So as we spend time with him, as we get before him, as we seek his face, as we read his word, we are metamorphosed 
we are transfigured into his image. So question, is that happening to you? I've been doing U-Turn for Christ. I came out here from California, 2001. I've been doing U-Turn for Christ for a long time. And I've had men after men after men come in and I'll have a conversation with them. Are you saved? Yeah, I've been saved. How long have you been saved? Oh, since I was a little guy. Well, how long have you been walking with the Lord? I've been walking with the Lord all my life, but yet they have a history of drug abuse and all the other things that go along with that, living in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. Just because you stumble and fall doesn't mean that you're not saved. However, if I've invited Jesus Christ into my life, shouldn't I be looking like him just a little bit? Shouldn't I? Yeah, absolutely. God doesn't enter our lives just to kind of hang out. That ain't what he's doing. He comes into our life to do what? Make us more like him. However, we can get in the way of what God wants to do. God is working out a process in us, and the process is sanctification. That's the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives, burning off the dross of our hearts, refining us, making us look, look more like Jesus. So, but walk with the Lord some 20-something years. I ain't perfect. My son's with me. You can ask him. His dad's not perfect, but I think I'm a little bit more like Christ than I was when I first started this journey, amen? And hopefully you are too. And again, it's not about perfection, but I should be able to look at my life and see some tangible growth as I walk with the Lord. I need to see that. I need to see that. I don't care if y'all see it. Hopefully you will, but I need to see that. I need to see that I'm growing more in the image of Christ. So Jesus metamorphosis, and he changed, his image changed. The Gospel of Mark says his garments were white as light. Luke says he was bright as lightning, a flash of lightning. So this was some supernatural, profound event that the disciples had the opportunity to see and behold, Moses, verse 3, and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Moses and Elijah appeared. The Gospel of Luke says that the disciples had fallen asleep during this period of time. And when they woke up, they see the spectacle. They see Jesus glorified, and then they see two of the most prominent characters in all of Holy, uh, uh, the Old Testament scriptures, Moses and Elijah. Now, can you imagine that, falling asleep? And then waking up, you see this bright image of Jesus, and then you see Elijah and Moses. And they were talking to him. Luke talks about what they were talking about. Please turn to Luke chapter 9. They were having this conversation with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Luke 9, verse 30 reads, And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure is literally exodus. They were speaking of his exodus. Moses led a great exodus of God's people out of Egypt, and we all know that, right? He took some two to three million people after the Jews had cried out to the Lord because of the slavery of the Egyptians, Moses led them out. But when they got to the promised land, 
And they got crazy again and started following after the gods of the Canaanites. So Moses knows about Exodus, but also in walk with me on this one. Elijah and all of his prophesying was not able to lead God's people from the worship of idols of the Canaanites. So he wasn't able to exodus them out of their worship of foreign gods. And so they both knew something about exodus. The exodus that Jesus was going to accomplish at Jerusalem was going to take captivity captive, Ephesians 4 says. And then in Luke 4, Jesus says, I came to set the captives free. And so his exodus at Jerusalem was going to accomplish what God had sent him to do. And that was to set us free, amen? To set us free. Free from the bondage of sin, from the penalty of sin. Verse 4. Peter, and, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now remember, they were asleep. They wake up, and here goes Peter, right? Man, it's good for us to be here, God. Uh, Peter, nobody asked you to say anything. Peter had this penchant for always putting his foot in his mouth. I can identify with that, Peter. I can identify. So waking up from sleep, and Peter volunteers a word that no one asked him to speak. Jesus hadn't asked him a question. Peter speaks because in the Gospel of Mark it says he didn't know what to say. So you don't know what to say, so you say something. Luke says Peter didn't realize what he was saying. Okay. Didn't know what to say and, and I didn't realize what I was saying. Let me tell you guys something. Everybody listen say amen. If you don't know what to say, don't say nothing. Amen? If you don't know, don't try to volunteer something. Peter's saying, hey, let us build three shelters. And basically what he said, we could hang out here. But he also was saying this, is that he's putting Moses and Elijah on the same level as Jesus. That's what he's saying. Let's build three shelters and then we'll just kind of hang out here. And, and while he was saying that, there comes a voice. Look at verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. But behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So a voice interrupts Peter from a bright cloud, a voice of God speaking from the Shekinah glory of God, saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That word, listen is a Greek word that means a continuous listening of, and it's a command. It's an imperative. God is saying he's commanding us to listen to his son. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Hebrews 1, verse 1 reads, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the power of his word when he had made purification of sins he sat down at the right hand of the, of the majesty on high verse 4 
having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Hebrew, the book of Hebrew speaks of the superiority of Jesus over the prophets, over the law, over the priesthood, over the priests, and even over the angels. And what that passage is saying is that God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament in times past. God is now speaking to his people through Jesus. For Jesus represents a better covenant. That's what Hebrews talks about. What the blood of goats and bulls couldn't accomplish, the sacrifice of Jesus did. You see, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial blood that was offered up on the altar time after time after time pointed to the coming of Christ and his once and for all sacrifice where that the blood of Jesus covers our sins once and for all, amen? So he doesn't need to die. And oh, by the way, he's not on the cross. He has risen again. And so because of this better covenant through Jesus Christ, Jesus is the one that we are to listen to. So God the Father saying, listen to him. Listen to his word. Verse 6. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. The voice terrified them. It says, and that's reminiscent of what happened to the people of God when Moses was bringing them out of Egypt. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. Imagine that. You wake up out of a deep sleep. There's this bright shining light coming from Jesus, and then there's this cloud overshadowing you, and it's bright, and you hear this voice. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Exodus 20, verse 18 reads, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. This is where they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. The Lord came down in a cloud and Moses went up to be with him. Verse 19, then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that you, I'm sorry, in order that the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. So there's this voice. And it thunders in such a manner that the disciples became fearful. But it also says in there that Jesus comforts them. He touches them. And he says, do not be afraid. You know what? Jesus is still doing that today, amen? He's still touching. And he's still comforting. And so whenever we're fearful, whenever we're afraid, we can cry out to our Father in heaven, and he will surely touch us, and he'll say, fear not, 
for I am with you. And when I first started walking with the Lord, I haven't done this in a while. But when I first started walking with the Lord, one of the things that I used to do to, to have a sense of drawing near to him is I would close my eyes and I would have this vision in my mind of a little child. That would be me. And he's standing in front of this big old huge throne. And there's this huge individual on the throne. And the individual is not distinguishable. It's just an image of an individual, which is God, which is Jesus. And I'm standing there with my arms up like this. And I see him reach down, and he picks me up, and he brings me to his bosom. And when I experience that in my mind, I feel the peace of God. I feel his presence. Whatever you have to do, whatever you need to do, to draw near to him, to have that peace, because he is the, the prince of peace, amen, then do that. He's saying, fear not, I'm with you. And he told his disciples before he left, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Law will always be with you, what? Even to the end of the age. And in the times that we're living in, there's times when Jesus, where you at with all this craziness going on? Where you is? Where are you, God? I just saw the other day, I, I think it was either Vermont, yeah, I believe it was Ver, Vermont, where one parent complained about the Bible in the school, and the school banned the Bible. And the individual that was complaining said that the Bible had writings of violence and, and porn. And supposedly the individual gave the uh, school administration verses. The story that I read never showed those verses, but supposedly they gave them verses. And I was reading, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. This is the world that we're living in. We need the peace and the comfort of God as we continue to walk. But he says, fear not. For I'm with you. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil was torn, and we can enter into the throne of grace boldly, with confidence in a time of need, Hebrews says. Going on, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Let the vision, I'm sorry, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Jesus didn't want them to say anything to anyone because his time had not yet come. Jesus was in control from the beginning to the end. No one takes my life, Jesus says. I lay down my life. So Jesus is telling them, now's not the time to let anybody know what's going on. Verse 10. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they were. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Why must Elijah come? Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Why must Elijah come? 
And you know, the Orthodox Jews are still waiting on Elijah to come. Every time they have a Passover meal, they leave an empty seat for Elijah. Malachi 4, verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Verse 12 says, Elijah already came, Jesus told them. He was speaking of John the Baptist. John came to prepare the way. Isaiah 4.30 reads, A voice is calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in, make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. And Luke 3, verse 2 through 4 reads, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, John came preaching a gospel of repentance. So there's a spiritual principle for you and I. We need to prepare a way for the Messiah in our own hearts. And as John came to prepare a way for Jesus to come into his earthly ministry, so you and I need to prepare a way in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that we need to get right and we need to do, you know, the right thing before Christ will come. What I'm saying is we need to repent, first of all, of our sin. We need to ask God to forgive us. And we need to repent. And so we need to do an exodus, if you will, of our own heart to turn away from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We need to do that. And so Elijah, in the person of uh, John the Baptist, came. In verse 11, it says John is coming. So the sequences of events in 11 and 12 is this, number one, Elijah is coming as a restorer, which again is what Malachi 4 or 5 says. Number two, he came. The Pharisees, the people of God, did not recognize that Elijah was coming in the person of John the Baptist, and they killed John the Baptist. And then number three, the Son of Man is going to face the same fate as John the Baptist. They seem to be able to understand that he was talking about John the Baptist as coming in the person of Elijah but they didn't seem to understand that Jesus was going to suffer that same fate. But then also in Revelation, it talks about two witnesses coming. And many scholars believe that those two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. And before the great coming of the Lord, coming back, Elijah is going to come again. So it could also be speaking about that particular event. Verse 14, when they came... To the crowd, a man, this is coming down off the mountain, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic. Greek uh, word is the word we get, epilepsy. So he's an epileptic. He's having seizures. He's a uh, lunatic and is very ill, for he falls often into the fire and often in the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving, are you faithless and 
perverted generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him. Now, in, in, in reading this, it seems like Jesus was being, being pretty harsh with him, right? You, you unbelieving, perverse generation. Well, we got to understand the language. First of all, uh, what he's saying is, you unbelieving, he's saying you faithless individuals. And that word perverted means to turn away from. And so what he's saying is, because of your faithlessness, you're turning away from believing that the power of God can heal, which is hindering you from delivering the demon out of this young man. And so he wasn't angry with him in that way. And so Jesus shows that he has power over the demons. And Peter and John get to see him in all of his power. He's over all. Jesus is over all things because the Bible says in James, demons believe they do what? They shudder, they tremble. And so Jesus delivers this demon out of this individual and also says, in order for you to do this, he told his disciples that you need to pray and fast. And so there's sometimes things that we need to get before the Lord with that we need to take a minute and get away and do some fasting and some praying, whether it be seeking the will of God, whether it be asking for God's direction in, in a decision that we're trying to make, or whether we just want to draw closer to the Lord. We need to pray and we need to fast. Verse uh, 19 why couldn't we drive out the demon? And Jesus says, because of the littleness or because of your unbelief. Go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the evidence of things not seen. Faith is having confidence that we are Believing what will happen. Faith is only as good as the object of that faith. Faith is only as good as the object of that faith. I used to attend 12-step meetings years ago. Anybody familiar with 12-step meetings? They talk about a God of your own understanding. And so if you wanted to make the light bulb your God of your own understanding, you could say the light bulb is your God. I don't think a light bulb has too much power. I'm not going to put my faith in a light bulb. Your faith is only as good as the object that you put it in. If God is overall, is, if God is all-powerful, then if our faith is in him, then the Bible says, with God all things, with Jesus all things are possible. Amen? And so we need to put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were grieved deeply. So, remember when we started this? Jesus was preparing them for his death, and he was spending a lot of time talking about his death. I'm going to Jerusalem. I must go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered up, and they're going to kill me. And he kept repeating that over and over 
again. But along with that, he also reminded them, oh, by the way, I'm going to raise on the third day. Hello? I'm not going to stay in the grave. It seems like all they could hear is, I'm going to die. It never seemed like they would catch that last part of that, right? I'm going to die. He said, they're going to kill me, but I'm going to be raised on the third day. Verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax, this is the temple tax that the Jews collected, came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, Peter said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him, saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? When Peter said, from strangers, Jesus said, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw a hook in it and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. And so a collector of the temple tax comes to Peter and says, does your master, teacher, not pay taxes? It was an annual tax of a half a shekel that was collected to support the temple. And in verse 25, Peter goes to Jesus, but Jesus is anticipating the question. He says to Peter to help Peter's confusion, he mentions about a king. Peter's confusion by trying to show him that members of the royal family are exempt from taxes. Jesus says that the king doesn't tax his family, his sons, taxes strangers. Thus Jesus, being the son of God, God in the flesh, was not personally obligated to pay taxes. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was the son of God. God in the flesh is not personally obligated to pay support of God's house because it was his house. Malachi 3.1 says it's his house. He didn't have to pay. Nevertheless, to avoid being an offense, that word means a stumbling block, the word we get scandal from. In order to not be a scandal, he paid the potex. Jesus didn't want to enter into any unnecessary conflict. And you know what, family? That's a word for you and I. Far too often we want to stand on a principle. And that principle is right. And even if that means separation from a relationship, from offending someone, I'm going to be right and I don't care because this is what the Bible says. Well, Who's a better example for you and I? There's a time and a place for everything. Jesus could have said, no, I'm not paying. I'm God. But in order to save a conflict, he went ahead and paid it. So question, what principle have you stand on or stood on that caused separation between somebody that was very near and dear to you or close to you that you could have just let go, that when it was all said and done, it mattered not? Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to confront sin. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus was not obligated, but he did so anyway. 
we shouldn't enter unnecessary conflict as well. Hear me when I say this. Are you listening? Say amen. Pick your battles wisely. Choose your battles. Years ago, when I first came out from California and was over U-Turn for Christ, a dear friend of mine, still a friend of mine today, said that to me. And I can't remember the conversation, but I know we were talking about something. I was telling him about something that was going on uh, with the ministry. And he said, Steve, let me tell you something. Pick your battles. Every battle is not a five-alarm fire where I got to bring out the 50 caliber howitzer and start blowing people out of the water. Amen? I don't have to do that. I need to pick my battles. Pick your battles wisely. Final thoughts. The highlight of chapter 17 is obviously the transfiguration. That's the great point of 17. They get to see Jesus in all of his glory. What a glorious mountain experience. What a glorious mountaintop experience. A time where the three disciples were able to catch a glimpse of the majesty of Jesus, a glimpse of heaven, if you will. You know, there are times when you and I experience a glimpse of Jesus in his glory, a glimpse of heaven, that mountaintop experience here on earth. Now, don't get me wrong. It, it's not like the transfiguration that Peter, John, and James experienced, but still, it is indeed sometimes that mountaintop experience. Think about it. When you go to a conference, a whole stadium, a whole uh, arena, sanctuary filled with God's people, and you're there to worship the Lord, or at a worship concert where there's a gathering of people and they've come to worship the Lord, and man, you can just sense his presence, and you can feel the heaviness of God, that Shekinah glory. Or when you're in your prayer closet by yourself and it's just you and the Father and you can just feel him and you know he's there near you. We have experienced those mountaintop experiences. That quiet time alone with the Lord where he reveals his glory to us. But just like the disciples, guess what? We got to come down off that mountaintop. Remember Peter said, man, let's build three shelters here and we'll just kind of stay here and hang out. That ain't what happened. What'd they do? They had to come down off the mountain. And just like you and I, we have to uh, come down off that mountain too. As much as we want to stay and hang out with the Lord, we can't. We have to come down off the mountain. And when they came down off the mountain, they came down and went into what? The valley, right? And what did they encounter in the valley? A demon-possessed boy. Right? So here's the principle. Life in Christ is not lived on the mountaintop, family. That's not what life in Christ is about. So if you're having bad days, guess what? You're all right. It's all right. It's all right. Every day is not a day of mountaintop, oh, glory to God, hallelujah, with God. It ain't. There are times when it is heavy. It's good to have those mountaintop experiences, amen? But God allows us to have those to prepare us to go down where? In the valley. Because that's where real life is lived, in the valley. And in the valley, just like the disciples ran into a demon-possessed boy, guess what? We're going to run into some demons down in the valley here, too. Come on, somebody need to say amen. Because <laughs> this is spiritual warfare. And the enemy ain't playing. 
And so we need to be prepared. That's what those mountaintop experiences do. We are in a battle. Ephesians 6 says that. Turn to, and this is the last passage we'll go to. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. We're in a battle, but in Ephesians, it tells us how we are to be prepared for that battle. Ephesians 6, 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our, struggles, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, the evil, resist in the evil day. Having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, verse 14. Therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the, the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God, verse 18, with all prayer petition, pray in at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Through that passage, Paul tells the church in Ephesus how to gird themselves for spiritual battle. And if you were going to war with that outfit on, you would be covered from head to toe. There's a way for us to be prepared for the battle. I'm sorry, I have one more. And I'll read it real quick. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of the fortresses. Verse 5. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And so be encouraged. We are in a war. But be encouraged. God has given us everything we need to fight the war. Amen? And oh, by the way, I've read the end of the story, and guess who wins? Huh? I, I can't hear y'all. Guess who wins? We do. And so be encouraged. And so, if we walk in the Spirit and utilize the weapons at our disposal, we will be victorious. We will win. Amen? So, mountain high, valley low. Mountain high. Mountain high prepares us. Being on that mountaintop prepares us. Valley low keeps us. Mountain high prepares us for the valley low. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. And it's interesting that we sung this morning the battle belongs to you. And that we're going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory because the battle belongs to you, Lord. We bless you and we thank you, God. And we praise you, Lord. Father, thank you for that vision of your glory that was demonstrated on Mount Transfiguration. That's a glimpse of heaven, Lord God. And Lord, though it, it cannot in any way compare to that experience, Lord, we do 
while we're here on earth have times where we do get a taste, a little glimpse of heaven. Pray, Lord God, that you would just continue to reveal yourself to your sons and your daughters, that you would shine like lightning in our lives, God. Lord, that that light would translate in us, Lord, that we would be lights in this world, that people would see and glorify our Father in heaven. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for the mountaintop experience, but we also realize, God, that real life in Christ is lived out down in the valley. So, Father, empower us, strengthen us. May we be encouraged, Lord God, that you're more than enough for us not to survive, but to live. Because you said that you came to give life and give it more abundantly. And we bless you for that. And so, Father, we praise you this morning and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you and God bless you.